3: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome to the Scholarly Communications channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm joined by Robin Sloggett and Marcel Scott, authors of Climatic and Environmental Threats to Cultural Heritage, published by Rutledge in November 2022. Climatic and Environmental Threats to Cultural Heritage examines the challenges that environmental change, both sudden and long-term, pose to the preservation of cultural materials. This book highlights how, in Australia, Southeast Asia, and the Pacific, the quest to preserve such precious knowledge relies on records and narratives being available to inform decisions now and into the future. The authors highlight how shared expertise can meet the challenges that environmental change brings to the future of our cultural heritage and our cultural identity, and they consider how local knowledge can have international application. Robin Sloggett holds the Cripps Foundation Chair of Cultural Materials Conservation and is Director of the Grimwade Center for Cultural Materials Conservation at the University of Melbourne. Marcel Scott is a research fellow at the University of Melbourne's Grimwade Center, where her research focuses on conservation theory, ethics, and pedagogy. Robin and Marcel, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks, Jen. It's nice to be with you. Before we Mm -hmm. dig into your book, uh, I would love if you could each share a few words about yourself, uh, where you were born, where you went to school, and how you arrived at working in the cultural heritage sector.
0: I'm happy to, Marcel here. Um, I guess I'll go first, Rob. Um, I I was born in Sydney and I went to Bridgetine College in Randwick, which was very close to where we lived and also the school that my mum went to. Um, We've had the occasional school reunion, which were always a lot of fun. Um, but now that our school buddies are dispersed across the country and, uh, and overseas, some of us catch up on social media, which is also a lot of fun. Um, I think visiting museums as a kid with my parents fairly often on weekends and sometimes on school excursions were quite influential. I loved looking at the exhibits of old things as we thought of them then, and the interest persisted. But at that time, I didn't think that it might turn into something more than just an interest. But years later, uh, I saw a photo on the front cover of a magazine. It was a photo of a damaged Greek vase, and that captured my attention. So I read on as the article described the process of repairing the vase, and the article used the term conserving, which was a totally new word for me. But I decided that there and then I wanted to be a conservator, a profession that I didn't even know existed. At the time, I was happily working in the dental health sector, but once I read the article, I had the bug. So I applied to study a course in cultural materials conservation, and to my amazement, it was accepted. Um, I think my dental health background convinced the selection panel that. I had the required manual dexterity skills and experience with various pieces of equipment that might be useful as a conservator. Um, I think that might come as a bit of a surprise to some people, but um, I guess the rest is history. Um, um, Thanks for asking that question, Jen. It's brought back some very, very happy memories.
2: That move from dentistry to conservation is amazing. And it actually does make a lot of logical sense, but um, probably isn't common. I love that. unusual. Um, Robin, did you have as amazing of a journey to conservation? No pressure.
1: I don't, I don't think so. I was less enamored with Greek vases in whatever condition they were and certainly I was not at all enamoured by going to the dentist. So, yeah, probably not, probably not a similar approach. But um, I was born in Melbourne. So, you know, we've got the Sydney-Melbourne rivalry, which is well-known in Australia going on here. Um, I'm Melbourne born and bred. And I grew up on what at that point was the kind of edge, the outer suburbs, you know. And I remember from very young, from three you know, walk to kindergarten. You'd walk through bushland. It'd be native vegetation. You'd have to look out for snakes. You know, this was like a lived experience. And then by the time I was five and walking to school, the bushland and the orchards have been overtaken by more suburban sprawl. We we're walking through housing. You know, new housing estates. So I spent my life watching cities swallow up bushland and species and ways of life. So I think that was formative. I completed a BA Honours in Art History and Philosophy at the University of Melbourne and I found I was in, by the end of that at fourth year, in this kind of continual postmodern complexity that involved a lot of, you know, verbing of nouns and dissecting semiotics and iconography and much less about exploring an art object, you know, not no grounded theory really at that stage. Um, So the idea that you could study the object and get to know the object and be deeply, um, you know, associated with an object uh, was something that really appealed to me. And around the time I was thinking of kind of finishing my studies, um, the Australian government had implemented a Senate inquiry, parliamentary inquiry into the State of Museum collections in Australia. And one of the outcomes of that was a decision that Australia needed to train conservators in this country, hmm. which was pretty radical at the time because all the conservation expertise, professional expertise, was coming from overseas, um, from the UK or the US. So I enrolled in the program that was had been only going for a couple of years in Canberra. Uh, we graduated from that, returned to Melbourne and began to work on a number of collections, which included the University of Melbourne. And the university then decided it wanted to incorporate a position. Um, I was named University Conservator. They wanted to develop teaching and research around cultural materials conservation because of its interdisciplinarity across the humanities and the sciences. In 2004, um, we started the conservation research and teaching program, and um, that's what Marcel and I have been working together you know, with on four for the past 20 years. So it's been a great journey.
2: So thanks, Jen. Yeah, amazing. Um, well, then turning to your recent book, Climatic and Environmental Threats to Cultural Heritage, you lay out a really clear and wide ranging set of ways that cultural heritage intersects with the climate crisis. Could you share what your overall goals were for writing this book and what kind of conversations you hope it will start? Um.
0: Well, we had both been well aware of the climate crisis and the impacts it was having across the world as global temperatures rose, as the duration and impacts of droughts, not only in Australia, but in parts of the United States and elsewhere, as they became more severe, and as the world watched in horror as fires spread across several continents, and as our Pacific neighbours in low-lying islands declared that due to rising sea levels, they fully expected to be climate change refugees. Mm. So we began to discuss amongst ourselves and our colleagues more and more about our responsibility to current and future generations, and more immediately to our students who are already very, very conscious of climate change and its impacts and keen to incorporate sustainability measures and responses to climate change into the curriculum. So while we weren't aiming to produce a textbook, we knew there was an important story to tell about how these catastrophic events were affecting people's lives and heritage. So we started to think about writing a book on these topics and how we might cover such an important topic in a meaningful and practical way. While at the same time, we also wanted to include the human perspective of heritage and the voices of people who are affected by climate change, including our students. So I think, Robin, um, you had some very clear ideas about why we wanted to write this book. Do you want to take over and share some of those now?
1: (laughs) Thanks, Marcel. I will, yeah. (laughs)
0: Um, (laughs) I think um,
1: just, you know, adding to what you said really, you know, we're both conservators. We wanted to show that heritage is a critical tool in helping understand the climate crisis And to argue that we need to put resources into preserving cultural heritage Mm. through advocating for addressing being active in the climate um, disaster response. We've provided examples, I think, of how heritage helps us understand um, the impact of climate change. And in doing that, we wanted to show what a valuable resource heritage was, why we need to... Protect our heritage, use our heritage. Um, So, you know, we talk about historic shipping records held in archives that are helping understand hundreds of years of data about meteorological records or how um, citizen science projects are using archives to pull out very specific data relevant to, to place um, we also want to raise awareness of how climate change is threatening heritage and why governments and panels like the um, IPCC, the Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change, need to include heritage thinking and um, have it incorporated into their committees and their panels and their recommendations. We analysed where heritage and cultural identified in such responses And we were a bit alarmed, I think, to find that basically it's not factored in at all. And there's very, very few heritage voices in these forums. So we wanted to address that. I think also because, you know, climate catastrophe is a global issue and all communities value heritage. So we felt we can't only continue to draw down on a limited range of knowledge or traditions to help understand and address you know, the challenges we're facing. So in writing the book, we also wanted to broaden out the idea of heritage as a global resource. So, you know, we therefore felt it was important to incorporate um, a discussion about Indigenous ways of knowing to make space for Indigenous voices when we're thinking about heritage and climate change. Um, And then, as Marcel pointed out, we believe that education and research absolutely essential tools in catalyzing knowledge opinion and action so we wanted to demonstrate how heritage experts you know professionals disciplines cultures rather than just the professions could take an active role in addressing the climate catastrophe and then finally I think we wanted to provide some just basic tools to help people to be proactive. Like it's okay to identify the problem and where it sits and what people could do, but people need basic tools. So we've included some of those. You know, basically I think we know the answer is only going to come through ongoing committed, effective dialogue and action. Mm-hmm. So we hope to begin conversations on the value of heritage for the future, how knowledge of and access to heritage impacts or intersects with other work that's being done around the climate crisis. And what kinds of frameworks and actions can provide, you know, a proactive intellectual heritage-based approach. So, Jen, we're really pleased to be starting this conversation with you. It's some really good to to be talking now.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is you know, it's an impressive set of things that you set out to do that you described and like you do those things in this book. It was an amazing book to read because you You cover so many things and weave so many threads together. But there's a term that you used um, in, in speaking just now, you used the term heritage expert and you make a really important statement in your introduction about who is a heritage knowledge expert and how professionalism fits into that category. Uh, I thought it was so important that you highlight this at the start. So could you speak more about who you understand to be a heritage knowledge expert and why it matters to consider this broad category um, of players in the work of doing cultural heritage in a world facing climate crisis?
0: Well, we use the term in its very broad sense because I I think it's very important to recognise the range of knowledge, skills, experience and expertise that individuals from all walks of life who can make a contribution to heritage preservation and protection. Whereas heritage professional, um, a more commonly used term in the heritage sector, it refers to practitioners who have a qualification in their particular fields such as archaeology, conservation, art history and in other areas and and they are also members of their representative body which requires them to adhere to their field's code of ethics, code of conduct and code of practice. Um, So we really wanted to um, recognize that um, there are people who are looking after heritage and know how to look after their cultural heritage and they have those skills without having to um, have completed university course or to do some other um, experiential work but um, Robert do you want to add anything there about why we really argued for that need for um, permeable ideas that constitute what it means to be a heritage expert
1: yeah thanks Marcel um I think you know the when we're putting the book together one of the things we agreed on is that one of the strongest influences for us has been the partnerships we've had at the Grimwade Centre with Indigenous communities I mean we have a two-way knowledge partnership with the Gidja community at Warman it's a formalized learning partnership. And it's very important it's two-way. And the Gidja elders have really been a significant part of how the Grimwade Centre understands cultural preservation. And, you know, Australia's fortunate to have the longest living culture in the world, at least 60,000 years with living traditions um, that record the knowledge and continue to expand uh, the knowledge that communities have held. So when we talk about the need for a more sustainable approach, we've got people with thousands of generations of crafting and maintaining, you know, the ultimate model of economic, social and cultural sustainability, that is keeping your culture going for, you know, at least 60,000 years. And it means we're very aware that heritage is, just, is not just monuments, you know, the UNESCO kind of definitions, building sites, natural features, books, archaeology, archives, you know, all of that, but also memory, law, lifestyle, performance. And that, you know, basically heritage is what a community values for the future. So the discussion of heritage being the past is really not a useful way to think about it. Heritage is what people want to bring with them now into the future. So we framed the book, I think, around that. We're also aware, I think, of the irony in privileging the knowledge and cultures of societies that have most contributed to the climate crisis, you know, maybe the best place to look is not, um, uh, you know, in the Western kind of history of ideas. So we wanted to broaden out the idea of the expert because there are so many people who care for heritage, you know, personally in their families, in their communities, and they're experts in their communities, like Marcel said, you know, as volunteers, as family members. um, But then there are community elders who are senior knowledge holders who hold cultural, ecological knowledge of specific communities and areas, and they have responsibility for that knowledge. And when we looked at research that was being done on responses to the climate crisis, it became pretty clear that this really significant knowledge held by these really, really important stakeholders just wasn't being prioritised. So in the book, we wanted to argue for its inclusion. And to do this, we needed to broaden the language available. And so, you know, the idea of heritage professional is predicated on a particular Western economic model. Um, But heritage expert, as Marcel said, broadens that out. Yeah. So, of course, you know, there's a very practical reason too, and that's just to shift the focus um, of who an expert is, because both of us have been involved in a number of um, post- disaster recovery situations and we know very well that the last people allowed into those situations are generally the heritage professionals you know after the emergency response so the experts at that point are the people who are on the ground so we have to bring them into the conversation and acknowledge their expertise too so I hope that makes sense Jen but we felt strongly that there's so much senior knowledge that needs to be part of the resources to address the climate crisis, but is kind of marginalized under existing ideas of professionalism.
2: Absolutely, yeah. Um, And you really make um, such a clear case for including more diverse voices. Um, And then you also point out uh, that we need a broader range of interdisciplinary methodologies for mitigating and responding to the climate crisis. Some of the methodologies you propose include Narrative policy framework, close evaluation of heritage data and the archival record, um, and turning to indigenous knowledge systems. Could you talk more about this imperative for making use of more methodo- methodological tools and perhaps some of those tools that you propose?
1: Yeah, well, I I think narrative policy framework's a fabulous tool in there. Yeah. <laughs> Sector actually, I mean, in the book, the book's divided into nine chapters, and in each we draw down on a particular methodology, or you know, explore a particular domain. So each of that, each of those raises a particular type of methodology that has has been developed for that domain. Um, but we open with the discussion of narrative framework theory. And it's been used extensively. I mean, I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with it, but it's been used extensively in the social sciences and in policy development. And we found narrative framework theory and narrative um, policy theory really useful because it it's based on storytelling and heritage at its core, is about telling stories. So as a methodology, it enabled us to tell stories, which, again, cuts across that difference between the professional and the expert. Both are telling stories, but one particular method for telling a story gets prioritised and privileged. So I guess we've been really interested in the work of US researcher Elizabeth Shanahan and the co-researchers that she works with. And they talk about narrative policy framework and they identify character characters and Mm. how you assign characters within a story and how that helps with policy development and bringing people into um, talking about difficult situations. So I might just unpick that a little bit. So um, in their... Take on narrative policy framework. They talk about a hero who's the fixer of the problem, the victim who's the entity being harmed, and the villain who's the entity causing the problem and/or inflicting the harm. Mm -hmm. You know, so in the climate change debate, the hero might be um, the SES work. That sorry, the um, I don't know if you have SES in the US, the emergency. Worker coming in to help out after the problem. The victim might be the person who's lost their home in the flood and the villain might be the that can be the river that overflowed or it can be the council that didn't, that released too much water from the mm-hmm. dam into the river. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we looked at this it, it seemed that communities are often framed as victims and heritage is often framed as a victim um, but Shanahan and her co-researchers found that the most powerful narrative that brought people in, if you wanted people to engage in a problem and have them work with you, was the victim-to-hero narrative, where it looks like someone's been impacted by some something and hasn't been able to do anything, but then you find that you, you talk about their agency and their ability and they transform from being the victim to being the hero. <laughs> and we argued that this was useful for us because it enabled us to think about heritage not as something that is impacted on but something that makes an impact so again then it enables to argue for conservation that we need to protect these things we talked about indigenous art centers in remote australia that hold the most extraordinary material very significant cultural material but the buildings are not cyclone proof And they're in the middle of cyclonic activity that's getting worse and worse, um, more and more um, impactful. So we wanted to be able to pull on methods that helped us decide how to be clear about a message, um, how to send that message out uh, and who to engage in it. So that was one method that we found really useful because it, it, very clearly in gave us a a process for doing that. Um, And then we picked up in Chapter 2 this idea of archives and records management, which is a much clearer methodology, of course, in the sector for everybody to understand. But we looked at how archives and records have been used to provide data about climate change. And then we looked at some of the risk models that come out of museums, libraries and the archive sector and I think from this chapter, we point out the the problem of disciplinary separation that leaves heritage experts grappling with a problem of preservation and access, while scientists are looking for comprehensive data sets. So we felt that if we could argue for better record management and access and talk about citizen science projects and how heritage helps understand climate change, then we could talk about a more integrated model. So that's another kind of methodology that we bring into the book, this idea of integration and seeking integrated models wherever um, you can find them. And that's across, you know, various kinds of disciplines. And then the other um, methodology I think that really interested us is how Indigenous perspectives on climate change are picked up in various Um, frameworks like anthropological and ethnographic frameworks and how these frameworks haven't been particularly useful. And we talk about the work of linguists um, because language is so complex, storytelling is so complex. Records are one thing. They're collected in very particular ways and um, they are already defined in terms of their uh, groupings and their hierarchies, but language, which is where oral history sits and much of the knowledge across the globe sits, um, is so complex. So we wanted to look at how language is used and and the kinds of tools for bringing language um, and documentation into um, the heritage role in climate change and the climate catastrophe so we have looked at the various ways in which knowledge sits beyond the the documented um physical record as well and the methodologies around that um so one of the issues is how we do research that supports um this kind of complexity and then we translate that into teaching and research because, of course, it's okay to do all of this and understand all of this, and you know, do the close evaluation of the heritage data and and argue about how Indigenous knowledge systems could be used. But if we can't articulate that for our students, then we really haven't succeeded in engaging our core constituency. So we felt that education was also one of the tools that was really important for us to address in the book. Marcel, maybe you want to talk a little bit about that?
0: Absolutely. It's um, very relevant. And um, as we mentioned earlier, today's students are highly conscious of the impacts of climate change and they expect the topic to be included in their studies. (laughs) So in the book we talk about one of the actions of the Student Climate Action Network which is uh, an international network of students looking to increase climate literature, li- literacy in higher education. And um, as their act of, um, uh, as their message, uh, they chose to turn their backs on the classroom and to make their point and to raise their concerns about the planet and their future and the need for all future generations, current or current and future generations, to really take action and to be aware of how serious the risk is. Um, but that set us up for a further discussion about um, um, a survey that we decided to undertake—an anonymous online survey of students from various courses at Melbourne University—and um, that's a, the, the responses to that really reinforced our understanding of student expectations. And that that is that aspects of climate change and sustainability will be um, a central part of the curriculum. The responses to the survey also showed that the students were very conscious of the complexity of the topic and that their uh, coursework and their research platforms really needed to recognize that students um, wanted it to be relevant and to be practical. Um some of the authors that we cite in the book put this very well when they comment that an exclusively scientific curriculum can miss opportunities to engage with the social and the practical aspects of people's daily lives. And for that, we need a curriculum that is both scientific and addresses the social experience of those affected by climate change. Um, And we had a similar outcome in a study of our master's students experience. And that showed that being explicit about the expected learning outcomes of the course built student confidence and improved their academic outcomes. And so this conforms with other research which showed that student learning is greatly enhanced when they're engaged with the topic. So, that's what we discuss in the book that um, what education um, about climate change, or education in times of climate crisis um, really does rely on people to be aware, to um, to do research, to understand the impacts and to um, learn how to apply those in a meaningful way. And so that's that's that requires both study and research. And so that's, I think, the key message of um, what we were talking about there about education in the book. Um, so um, as you can see, Jen, there's still uh, much more work that can be done in the education sector and in the um, aware raising awareness um, more broadly around the impacts of climate change on cultural heritage.
2: Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
3: slash nbn50 to get 50% off
2: thank That's you the point. <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's exciting to think about the potential um, just in the education sector um, but yeah there's a lot of work to do and um, so moving from methodology to source material, there's two specific types of information resource that you go into a lot more detail about, uh, rock art and oral history. How do these fit the broader picture of environmental change and climate crisis? And why do these two specifically really matter uh, for climate science?
1: Um, Maybe, Marcel, I'll talk about oral history first. And then you can locate that in rock Art. And I think the link between both of them is, you know, from our perspective, um, just the longevity of these records. So oral history is discussed by UNESCO as being intangible. Uh, it's very tangible and it's it's got such um, a long, long history um, documentation capability so maybe i'll unpick that a little bit and explain why oral history is so critical Um, so in the book we talk about oral history being important i think in three ways first it's a valuable heritage record in its own right second it's also evidence of how people make sense of the world and their place in it and their agency in it and third because the relationship of oral histories to what people know is also an indicator of what they prioritise and what they value. So maybe picking up the first one, you know, is a valuable heritage record. You know, I noted 60,000 years of um, documentation of living culture in Australia. And much of that... um, or well, the reason we can call it a living culture is because of the uh, performance, the stories, uh, the oral histories that are handed down. I'll give you an example. And now they're being verified by science. So, for example, in Melbourne, the Boonarong, which is an um, uh, Indigenous community, part of the Kulin Nation, have a um, story about a waterfall. And that waterfall was at the end of the Yarra River, which flows through Melbourne. Now, there's no evidence of that waterfall now. Um, so that story, you know, is put down as kind of a legend, a dreamtime story sometimes they're called. Um, then the Victorian government was dredging Port Phillip Bay in order to um, open it up for shipping. And they came to a large cliff face under port phillip bay and that was the year that the drought broke and there was significant water very dirty water flushed down the yarra and the um, documentation the imaging of this cliff face was showing this enormous waterfall where the yarra had flowed down and into the bay and then followed its path from the previous ice age 11,000 years ago this enormous waterfall and that's the waterfall and the location that is recorded in what was considered a bunarong legend but is really oral documentation of 11 of what was the lifestyle and geography and environment of the bunarong people 11,000 years ago and there's a number of those kinds of verifications taking place across Australia of what was thought to be you know legendary, but is actually really rigorous documentation. And part of that is because oral stories in indigenous communities have very, very firm rules around how they can be continued to be passed on. So the idea that it's just a story and it might get interrupted in its telling or somehow made different in its telling just doesn't hold up because of the rigour of senior knowledge and how people achieve the ability to be senior knowledges and have the rights to tell stories. These are really important parts of what makes oral histories verifiable. So that's one area where oral history is really important because it is a document and a rigorous document. In Chapter 3, we talk about, language and how language is important. So not just a translation of an oral history, but that that orality needs to be in language. And we pick up an example there, um, which is a Bininjangun um, word, uh, which is it's one word, but in language, this is how it translates. It's a name for a male anti kangaroo that is resting, lying on its side in part shade during the heat of the day, and the movement of the dappled light on its fur gives it the appearance of having covered itself with white clay, just as hunters do when they hunt for these large animals. And that's because of the way Indigenous languages in Australia are constructed. And in that example, you see it's so much climatic and environmental information the light, the animal, where it is, the species, what it looks like, and then the relationship of that to ceremony. So, you know, deep, deep knowledge. So we talk Impressive. about... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, we talk about in the book, how do you translate that? Like, you know, you can't take that kind of knowledge to the UN and have a translator working across into translating that to Spanish or English very quickly, you know. Um, So we need to make space and we need to acknowledge that heritage occurs in so many different ways and we're only just really beginning to unpick some of that. So Um, and then in in Chapter 5 we pick up uh, the work that we've done in in timor Leste people's responses to floods and that's because oral histories are also histories of how people respond and what they found to be effective responses and we can learn a lot from those Um, and the same thing with the bushfires and you know myself done a lot of work around people's stories from the bushfires and bushfire recovery and responses so oral histories are just so important on so many different levels and that's why we've given them such a prominent place in the book, because at the moment they're a tool that I think is really underutilised, but they are heritage. They're heritage for so many people on the planet and so many people on the planet who actually haven't contributed to the problem we've got, but have developed lifestyles that should be part of the solution. So we need to take a reality really seriously, I think. Um, Marcel, now I might pass to you to talk about The Warty Pig and Rock Art.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Robin, like, good on you. What an introduction. Um, Jen, when we were writing the book, we would each share drafts of of the chapters that we were writing, and um, when we were working on the Rock Art chapter, Robin sent me a message with the title The Warty Pig. Well, I completely cracked up laughing, having never heard of the species before. I had no idea what she was getting at. I thought she was you know, making a joke. Um, but once I read the draft she sent and discovered that um, what she was talking about was a, a rock art painting of a warty pig, uh, which is a critically endangered wild pig. And there was a painting of this in a rock art complex in um, South Sulawesi in Indonesia. And it had been dated to at least 45 um, and a half thousand years ago. So um I became quick completely focused on the chapter and um, certainly not laughing at um at the title because um, well, it was uh certainly unexpected to me, but as I read more about it and um, extended our reading and research for the chapter, we were able to refine its scope to focus on rock art as a form of historical documentation, one that's capable um, of revealing changes in climate, of species extinction, of human occupation, of agricultural practices, of the use of tools, and of the continuity of cultural practice. That links in, Robin, to the point that that you were just making. Um, But um, further reading on the effects of climate change showed that they were considerable and widespread and largely due to changes. Oh, sorry, I'm talking about effects of climate change on rock art. Um, But it showed that they were considerable and widespread and largely due to changes in weather patterns rising sea levels, increased frequency and severity of of bushfire activity. And all of those can have an impact on um, the readability of rock art paintings. Um, So like other places that care for documents, rock art sites also need to have some form of protection and maintenance. But unlike documents held in libraries and museums, protection of rock art sites don't have the same level um, of of protection from the elements. What they do have in common is the need to record their condition and to understand and respect their cultural context. So as you can see, Jan, the information resources for climate change are really diverse and we need to have them all available into the future.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed um, thinking about the breadth of source material that um, we can read uh, in different ways. Uh, And you mentioned fires a few times already, and you write about these devastating fires that have increased as a result of climate change and that pose a major threat to cultural heritage. Now, when you write about fires in chapter six, a lot of the themes of the book come into play, but I want to focus on another thread that I saw come through here and in, in several places, which is the concept of grief. You present the idea of solastalgia in chapter six, and I was wondering if you could define that term for listeners and share about the role of grief, trauma and mental health and how those are tied up in conversations about cultural heritage and climate catastrophe.
1: Um, yeah, so I think
2: it's a very difficult word <laughs>
1: For me to say solastalgia, I always have to stop and think. It's virtually unpronounceable. So you can see why it's not in the general lexicon quite yet. Um, But it's a very uh, poignant and palpable word, I think. So, you know, short meaning, grief caused by environmental change. It was stemmed by an Australian um, environmental philosopher, Glenn Albrecht uh, about a decade ago Um, and he meant the particularly deep emotion that people feel when they're faced with human-induced desolation, you know, like a a loss of a home or loss of environment around them. I might just read out his definition as such. He says, The pain experienced when there is recognition that the place where one resides and that one loves is under immediate assault, physical desolation. It is manifest in an attack on one's sense of place, in the erosion of the sense of belonging, identity, to a particular place and a feeling of distress, psychological desolation about its transformation. And it's the sort of feeling that people often talk about when they've lost their heritage, through a disaster. Um, I remember one case in the floods in Queensland. They brought one person back into community first, um, and he was a priest. And they were building houses, and they thought, we'll bring him back because he can do pastoral care for the community. And he came into a house without anything that he loved around it. And they brought other people back, but they were bringing their belongings back with them. And he ended up not being able to stay in community because he was so overcome by this sense of loss because he didn't have a familiar um, touchstones around him. So we were, we often see this discussed in terms of the value of heritage, that it it does work to ballast grief when people have lost a lot of things. It does help people retain their sense of identity um, and it is part of, of how people rebuild themselves after devastating, catastrophic events that have been created by climate change. Now, so maybe it's useful to talk about some of the concrete examples um, of the relationship between grief, trauma, mental health, um, particularly the ones that you've been looking at around bushfires and similar Um, examples? Um,
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I I looked at a study of the mental health and well-being impacts of the catastrophic 2009 bushfires that spread um, across Victoria, Australia, where most people identified a deep connection to the natural environment and felt really profound feelings of loss and grief at the damage to the landscape. And for others, the sight of dead animals and the damaged landscape brought back overwhelming feelings of grief. And um, 10 years later, um, in 2019, fires again burned right across Australia. And um, for for one of the Indigenous rangers, witnessing the damage to the environment for the fires had a huge toll on her mental health. And it took her a very long time to come to terms with the fact that she had done her best for the environment. She was a ranger. It was her role. She thought that she was doing everything she possibly could, Um, but she couldn't stop the, the catastrophe like that. And um, so she felt really double levels of, um, of grief about it. She felt as if she hadn't done enough and, Um, um, she just was disappointed not only um, in herself but that um, there was no preparation for for such an event and it has had a long-term impact on her well-being. So um, I think with those examples we can see how central cultural heritage is to, to people and to how they uh, are impacted um, by climate change, how they respond to it and how they move forward into a future that might look very different from their past, but they're also so aware that the future might actually be more devastating and more distressing for them than it currently is those messages were so clear in the people that we spoke to and to other surveys that we'd gone on with.
2: Yeah, yeah, well, and I I guess, like thinking about um, moving into the future, you suggest throughout the book that cultural heritage can lead the way in planning for environmental change and in responding to climate disasters there are a number of suggestions that you present involving local community organizations, professional heritage institutions, and even the education and training programs that heritage professionals go through. Could you talk about some of those suggestions for how cultural heritage can take the lead as we move into the future?
0: Uh, Yeah, Um, we're both very interested in local history and heritage and the material, Records uh, and records held in local museums, in historical societies, and in community groups, and how they um, tell local stories that are locally relevant. Um, we were very mindful that the bushfires and the floods across Australia may have affected these collections. So, we invited members of, uh, I think, 13 historical societies and heritage organisations right across Southeast Australia to complete in an online survey consisting of of six questions seeking their views on climate change and um, to gain an insight into their role. So the organisations might have varying roles in local discussions about climate change and the impacts um, on the local environment as well as on the heritage collections that they're looking after. Our main takeaway from those responses, um, from from the survey and from the discussions we'd had with colleagues internationally, is that the knowledge held by local heritage experts is absolutely central to our understanding of the impact of climate change on cultural heritage. Um, So um, Rob, uh, do you want to talk a bit more about the communities we engage with and... um, some of the main suggestions that came out of those discussions?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think we use the term community really broadly. So there's communities of practice, there's communities of knowledge, there's communities of activity, there's, you know, communities that are social, there's family communities. All of these are relevant um, to having heritage, protecting heritage, Loving heritage, wanting to preserve heritage, you know. Um, so, what we wanted to, to do was um, have the research in the book that could help discuss preparedness and response um, across these broad range of communities. So, we thought about the kinds of ecology of knowledges that sit within these communities, um, how different communities know different things and then how we need to make space for those different kinds of knowings. We need to open up dialogue. we need to just sometimes shut up and listen to other people. Um, professionals are very good at synthesizing, documenting, reporting on, researching, writing up. Um, but sometimes our resourcing should simply make help people help other people um, have a space. So we felt it was important to talk about that ecology of knowledge and what goes wrong if we don't look for broad ecologies of knowledge around heritage preservation and, of course, acknowledging what we've talked about before, that expertise is much broader than just professionalism. Um, But also it was important to think about these broad range of communities because... We need to be attenuated to language, meaning, power structures and how um, professionals can shut down space for communities. Um, But I think as we've talked about throughout this discussion, so much knowledge is held in communities and it's held so much valuable knowledge around sustainability is held in communities where um, professionals who are at the UN or at major conferences or at professional bodies um, are simply not integrating um, that knowledge into um, the, the discussions that are being held where the policy and the policy frameworks are being formulated. So we do focus on communities a lot and we do it because we feel heritage is across all communities and all communities have very effective ways of protecting their heritage and we need to know about that um, and i guess myself that brings us back to education and training and how we make sure that students understand that need to make space and um think about the kind of power structures that where they're working in and how problematic they are when we're trying to address climate change so maybe you could talk about the education and training work that we did
0: yes um again um as we were working through the book we realized that there was a lot more work that could be done in in this particular capacity um so as i was again researching the literature on education and climate change it became apparent that most disciplines were adapting their course content to include more people-centric concerns uh, related to sustainability and human rights and um, and related issues associated with climate change impact. So this was really going to require education programs, including our own, to draw on both scientific uh, perspectives, cultural perspectives and philosophical perspectives. And this made um, sense for cultural conservation and heritage based programs, because in fact, they've always been interdisciplinary in their approach and they've always um, focused on the human person the human perspective um, of why society allows and requires conservators to conserve and to preserve cultural heritage so um that was kind of key to the way we approached the education chapter um focusing it again on um the human purpose the um the human perspective, the human impact, um, and to really bring that front and center. So um, um, Robin, of course, that then brings us to that other major group um, um, in, the, in heritage institutions. Um, so can you say a few words about um, heritage institutions and their preparedness and response to climate change?
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, the point for us is that this is where the dominant discourse seems to be happening through institutions at the moment, whether they're professional institutions um, like um, ICOMOS or ICOM or whether they're government state institutions like um, the Smithsonian or, you know, Australia, the National Gallery, for example. Um, But these institutions... Have very close relationships or want to have very close relationships with government so the policies and the strategies are coming down from government to these institutions and what we felt in the book is we needed to unpick this a bit to see exactly what the institutions were doing so in the survey questions we asked institutions about their policies about how they formulated their policies about how they were investing in green facilities um, and so on and we then identified a range of methods that seem to be common but also methods that we could be using for example um, the five waste management principles refuse reduce reuse repurpose recycle I mean, that's a great mantra. We use that in our laboratory. Our students, when they do a treatment proposal for conservation, they have to filter their proposal and the materials that they're proposing through the waste management principles. They have to do a waste management um, strategy for their particular proposal. Same thing with life cycle assessments. Life cycle assessments are a standard tool used within institutions. Very useful. And it enables us to think about what alternatives that we might use. So if we've got a particular uh, chemical or piece of equipment that we're using, what's going to happen to that in 50 years' time? Does it go to landfill? What does it mean to be recyclable? Is it plastic? Does that just mean it's going to turn into a microplastic and be more of a problem but in a different form but out of our line of sight? Um, so assess a, as, uh, I can't speak. As, assessing environmental impacts is really important. Um, and then there's so many tools that are available that institutions are using that we felt should be showcased like scorecard assessments. So if you Google, sorry, go to a search engine for scorecard assessments, you can find any number of various models for doing scorecard assessments or project Drawdown is a great um, resource for people to use. If you have a look at the site for Project Drawdown, um, you can identify various activities and the um, carbon emissions and the environmental impact from that activity. So, again, that then allows you to look at alternatives. You know, if you're transporting a work of art or you're transporting a record across town You can now measure the environmental impact of that. So we felt, you know, that there's so much out there. People just need to be thinking about it, incorporating it into their practice. So we've hoped that the book gives people some capacity to do that in ways that they probably hadn't thought about readily before. Um, So as you can see, Jen, all of this has highlighted the need for much broader discussion, so that's how call at the end of the book for urgent research you know gap identification ensure better and more effective representation of heritage stakeholders um across communities and 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 across countries like let's get a global conversation happening Uh, and in short you know how do we build culturally diverse broadly interdisciplinary rigorously rigorously wrought connections um where we can work as, as heritage experts, heritage professionals, and be ready with rapid and purpose-built um, responses to the climate catastrophe. So we hope the books enable some thinking, if not some tools for people to be able to do that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you open it up for everyone to be involved in this work, quite literally, in the, the wealth of... Um, options that you've just talked about, about how cultural heritage can um, really point us towards the future. Um, Before we wrap up, because I've taken a lot of your time, I want to talk really specifically about geographic focus. Because I do think that this book is applicable to everyone, but you do note in the introduction that you have this specific geographic focus um, looking at the effects of and responses to the climate crisis in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. So could you talk about how some of the main takeaways of the book are still relevant outside that region and how your own research could be a model for parallel conversations
1: elsewhere? Sure,
2: I'll I'll pick that up myself and yes go
1: for it <laughs> so you know if we use the term cultural heritage sector in the i guess it's broadest sense um even then we're still got a limited understanding of what's needed to preserve cultural heritage in the face of climate change and we felt well, a couple of things one there's a lot of good research being done all over the world um but when we looked at literature surveys that had been done, a number of people doing surveys on heritage and climate change noted that Southeast Asia and the Pacific region, our part of the world, was underrepresented. So we thought that was important to address. But more significantly, Australia is bordered by the Indian Ocean, the Great Southern Ocean, Southeast Asia to to the north and the Pacific to the east. You know, this all of these areas are key parts of um, recipients of catastrophes wrought by climate change. So we really wanted to, um, you know, bring to the fore that the voices from the region. Um, but in doing so, we wanted to explain why these voices were important and why everything needs to be global, whether weather doesn't stop at a border climate doesn't stop at a border right that's what climate change is about so um it was really important for us to think about how what we were saying would translate across across borders um and then we looked at you know the ipcc into um, government panel on climate change many it's meant managed to bring a range of diverse disciplines to produce world-leading research. But the heritage sector isn't really included in many of the reports that are coming out of IPCC. Yet, you know, I hope our discussions explain why we think it's absolutely central to Mm -hmm. many, much of the work of IPCC. And we felt that um, it's also problematic to have this differentiated model of heritage by tangibility and intangibility and further distinguished by place-based or built or collected and that this fragmented research responses and impact. So third, we wanted to have a more consolidated approach to data collection, ingestion, Mm -hmm. sharing. So I guess we wanted to point out that there's there's real knowledge and there's real voices in this part of the world. They're underrepresented, but what they point to is how the, we can have a global approach and how heritage professionals can um, spearhead global approaches that we need to take up. You know, we need to take our battle up to the major forums and we need to be visible and we need to be articulate articulate in them. Um, so, you know, I guess in summary, there's a few things that we felt could be picked up broadly beyond any any type of region, any type of border. So strong community engagement, we felt was it's relevant for everybody, cross-cultural inclusion, coordinating programs of research. Fragmented research is probably, you know, the enemy of effective responses. Um taking public positions that are clearly articulated. So we don't have one heritage sector saying one thing or another one saying something slightly different. We need to be really clear, hence the need for coordination, Um, that our policy and strategic frameworks need to be cross-sectoral and international. Um, We need to have key messages that we all agree on and, whenever anyone talks about heritage, they're the messages that people can use, you know, and another kind of drop-down box of a toolkit for people to use when they're in an advocacy position, whether it's, you know, the elevator pitch or whether you're taking it up to the UN. Um, and adapting cultural heritage organisations, you know, we felt that a lot of what we say in the book could be picked up for heritage organisations who want to adapt their current methodologies or their current positioning. Um, and we, you know, we argue for practical actions like lifestyle, life cycle assessments, which anyone can pick up. So I guess there's no doubt that the climate crisis, it presents us with challenges that are so overwhelming and the solutions are so complex. So it seems that we're almost gripped by mass catatonia. I think, across the world, you know? Yeah. And it's characterised by inertia, inaction, inattentiveness inattentiveness, and the overwhelming sense of grief that we've talked about. So it's an immense challenge. It's a global challenge. We've used the examples that we know from where we are and who we are, Uh but I hope we've made the case that these translate to who other people are and where other people are. And it's the complexity that propelled us to write the book, but also our, I guess, deep commitment and love of heritage and of wanting to help people as conservatives, you know, it's our job, take what they value and be able to take that into into their future and their children's future and children's children's futures, you know. If we don't deal with the climate catastrophe, none of us have got a future that looks anything like what we've we've had in the past. So, myself, maybe you can make sense of what I just said. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm not going to make an attempt at that, Rob. No, but what, what I will do is um, is thanks, Jen, for um, the opportunity. Um, for us to talk in this way and um, um, and just discuss the aspects of the book. And really dialogue is one of the main tools that we talk about in the book and so we're delighted to have been able to talk about it. And, um, yeah, we hope the podcast will spur your listeners to take up the challenge of increasing dialogue and action. And, um, well... Um, here comes the advertorial, Because <laughs> if, if you go to the if you go to the Grimway Center website, uh, you'll be able to find um, our contact details. And we'd be very, very happy to pick up this conversation with anyone who has an interest in talking with us further or who might have suggestions for how we can all work uh, together for a more secure future.
2: thank you so much for putting that invitation out i feel like you have laid out so many ways for folks to um connect with this work and be part of this work and i'm really excited for folks to find what you have done and and see themselves in it and and find ways to um contribute to the the real problem solving that needs to happen um Well, Robin and Marcel, thank you so much for your time today. It's really been a pleasure chatting. Uh, And once again, my guests today are the authors of Climatic and Environmental Threats to Cultural Heritage, published by Rutledge. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you're listening to the Scholarly Communications channel of the New Books Network.